This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. This is a Sunday kind of love. I'm Tasha Fusil, and I'm here with my Sunday companion, Maya Tan. So last week, we said we were going to go on a break. But the year is coming to an end and there are too many exciting things to do and see in the city, too many new movies being released that we need to talk about, and too many stories to share. So, surprise! We're back! And since our resident couch potatoes, Christina Oro and Edwin Sumun, are away decorating their Christmas trees, we've decided to make this a special story-sharing episode. Maya recalls the story of a stolen book from her childhood. Zamzura Zahari helps us tell a mythical story often portrayed in Mark Young performances. And finally, William Beale takes us on the journey of one man's life. As some of you may know, my partner in crime Maya Tan is a writer. So today, Maya turns back time to give us a brief glimpse into her childhood, once upon a dark, dark day. once stole a storybook. It wasn't that the book was anything special. It was an old dusty book with a hard cover and yellowed pages and the musty smell of humid Malaysian libraries with slow swirling fans and silverfish darting out to give you a big fright if you're unlucky. You see, you see? I was a latchkey kid. I was a latchkey kid. I had two choices. I either take the bus home Fish the key out from under the mat, let myself into the house, make myself some Megimi, and go dig out one of my old books to read. Or, I could spend my time at the school library and wait for my dad to pick me up after work. Either way, way, it was a dreary dreary prospect. The afternoon, spent all alone with no one to talk to. Where was my mother? At her sister's house, convalescing, unable to cope with looking after my baby brother. But I suspect Mahjong had something to do with it. Thank goodness for the storybook. My mother used to read to me when I was littler, before I could even read myself. She would read to me so often that I once tricked her into thinking that I could read. Truth was, I memorized every word. And with that, especially after I learned to read properly, I began my long and storied relationship with books. There was only one problem. I read too fast. I read so quickly, so voraciously, that I finished the books that my parents bought for me on weekends where we stopped at the bookshop. When I'd finish, I'd ask for more, and they would never believe me when I told them. Yes, I really have finished my book. I used to read a lot of Enid Blyton, Adventures of the Wishing Chair, The Magic Faraway Tree, and I knew all about brownies, pixies, fairies, and goblins. So, whenever I had a book to read at home, I would go home and pretend my Maggie noodles were hearty lamb stew or a piping hot steak and kidney pie with blanc manche for dessert, whatever that is. When I finished a book, I sometimes started writing my own stories. 
about little girls wandering about in English country gardens and woods, looking for poisonous plant life to murder their mothers with. <laughs> One day, I had just finished flipping through my favorite book on marine life, with big glossy pictures of man-eating sharks when I glanced at my watch and realized that it was time to head down to the porch of the big colonial house that was my school to wait for my dad. I returned the book to its shelf, walked out of the library and picked up my school bag at the entrance. By the door was a trolley full of books. Maybe there were new books, books that had just been donated. And right on top was a book with a peeling cover entitled Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, pictures by Garth Williams. I looked around. No adults were in sight. So I picked it up and read the first page. Where is Papa going with that axe? See why he needs an axe. Never amount to anything. Do away with Did it. Did he kill it? It's because it's smaller than the others. Please don't kill it. It's unfair. <coughs> At that exact moment, I heard the horn of my father's car. I dropped the book and started running. Because if Daddy left, thinking I'd taken the bus, I would be stuck in school. But I was torn. What an interesting book. An eight-year-old girl, just like me. A little pig about to be killed? Does it get killed? Does it? Does it? I had to know! I hesitated. You know, like when you have to leave the house but you have to go to the bathroom and you're late, but you have to go and you wonder if you can make this journey, but then you turn back and go to the bathroom because your bladder wins the argument? Well, in this case, I let my bladder win the argument. I ran back to the trolley, took the book, stuffed it in my bag, and went down to meet Dad. It's okay, I thought to myself, I'll return it tomorrow. That night, I read under the covers, and I entered the world of Fern and Wilbur the pig and laughed at Templeton and marveled at Charlotte's kindness and cleverness and cried when Charlotte died. And the next day, I just couldn't return the book. I couldn't. I simply couldn't. I went home every day and read Charlotte's Web and ate my Maggie, and I imagined I was eating fresh farm eggs with corn on the cob. I read at night, I read on weekends. The days stretched out into weeks and then months and soon, it was the end of the term. On the last day of school, I walked into the library with the book stuffed down the front of my pinafore, trying to look fat. Basically, I think I just puffed up my cheeks to pretend I put on weight. And to justify the fact that I had a rectangular shaped thing in the area of my stomach, I walked to the storybook corner looked around, I slowly fished the book out and then with a big sigh, <sighs> slid the book on one of the shelves. I didn't have much mood left to read after that. Everything seemed lackluster and just plain boring. Even pictures of the fearsome fang-toothed fish didn't cheer me up. When it was time to go, the librarian to be honest, I can't remember her name, said to me, Huh, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you? I nodded and smiled a little. Are you coming back next term? I said, yes. Okay, she said, see you next term. I waved goodbye and picked up my bag. I was halfway down the large spiraling stairs when I heard her call out my name. I stopped and turned to look up, and my heart dropped into my panties. Her face appeared at the top of the stairs, and horror of horrors, she held the book in her hand. It was THE book. 
I know because I had woken up with it, eaten meals with it, and slept with it at night. I thought, she's going to punish me. She's going to tell my parents. She's going to get me expelled. And then she spoke, and my ears couldn't believe the words. Come on up, silly. You left your storybook. I went up the stairs and just kind of stared at her with what must have been a silly look on my face. She smiled and held the book out to me again. Actually, miss, I started to say, um, this book is, this book is, this book is your favorite? She said, I know, it was my favorite too, she said and winked at me. More stories after this on A Sunday Kind of Love. I'm Tasha Fusil on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to A Sunday Kind of Love. This is our story sharing episode. I'm Tasha Fusil. Up next... Zamzuria Aswari, member of Gang Watlong and a dance lecturer at Aswara, helps us to tell the story of Dewa Muda and the Seven Petal Blossom. It's a story that's been told for generations at Mak Yong performances, so we collaborate with Zamzuria to retell the story with a contemporary twist. In his dreams, late one night, in the hour where the moon shone brightest, Dewa Muda was approached by an old man. In his dreams, the old man had three humps on his back. He put his lips close to the Dewa Muda's ear and whispered, You, you must go on a hunt. When he awoke, Dewa Muda gathered his two aides, his mother and Wat Nujum, the giver of meaning to dreams, to ask about his dream. Wat Nujum summoned his visions based on a magic that only he understood and said, you must venture into the forest and hunt for deer. If you do not do this, the country will be beset with disaster. 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 Silalah mu bersiap kita nak agak tiba menuju ke alas sunyi belukar yang muda pulaknya. Bleh bleh bjalega The journey into the forest was exceptionally difficult and strange, far from the usual. At some point, a storm of sorts blew into the forest and the Dewa Muda and his men were spun about, unable to see the way ahead. They disappeared and when they came to, they were all isolated and alone in different parts of the forest. Eventually, they chanced upon each other and were reunited, but the incident had made His Majesty, Dewa Muda, exceptionally thirsty. He asked for water and his aides immediately went to fetch it. Dewa Muda took a sip but spat it out immediately. It was foul to the taste. Where did you get this water? He asked his aides. They guided him to the stream of water. 
he followed the stream, a foreboding feeling rising in his heart. The stream led to a lake, and just as the tributary opened onto the lake, he spotted a large flower floating against the flow of the stream. Dewamuda couldn't believe his eyes. Instead of following the stream into the lake, the flower floated upstream. He asked his men to retrieve the blossom, but try as they might, they couldn't. Every time a man got close to the flower, it would float just slightly beyond his reach. Impatient, the Dewamuda got off his horse and plunged into the water. Unlike his men, the flower came easily to Dewamuda's fingers, and before long, he held it in his hands. Oh, pengaso, mu tengoklah bunga ni pengaso. Dale bunga ni ke ada tujuh kelopak, tujuh wajah-wajah hair ni pengaso. Oh, benaku, benaku. The flower was unlike anything he had ever seen. It was iridescent and seemed to glow in different colors whenever he turned it this way and that in the light. He saw that the flower had seven petals, and as he examined each petal, the flower delivered its secrets. The flower had been sent there by the princess of the heavens, the princess of Kayangan. She said, "Come save me! Rescue me. Save, me. save me! I need to see. I need to see. You. Speak, to speak to you. Save me! Save me! Save me!" And there was more. To get to the heavens, the Dewa Muda had to find a golden wow as wide as seven ledicks and as tall as seven gahs. And the final discovery, this mysterious golden wow, was to be found in his very own home, the custodian of which was none other than his own mother. Bondo, kalu bondo betul kasihkan ni. The Dewa Muda rushed home and asked his mother for the golden wow. His bonda's reply: Mana ada waktu ni? What wow? You see, the truth was. The wow had been a national treasure owned by the Dewamuda's father, now long gone from the earth. In her grief, the wow was but the one thing the Dewamuda's mother had to remind her of her dead husband, and she was reluctant to give it up. The Dewamuda was unconvinced and kept on pressing. Bondo tak salah dok tipu ni bondo. They argued and argued, and after a time, his bonda revealed that it had been hidden away in another state. She relented and sent for the wow, which needed repairs because it was so old, it could not be flown. After it had been repaired, it was presented to the Dewa Muda, but there was a caveat. For the golden wow was no ordinary kite. The Dewa Muda would not be able to fly the kite on his own, Bonda said. Now it would do as well to realize at this point that the Dewa Muda is no mere mortal either. To fly the golden kite, the Dewa Muda had to summon his spirit doppelganger self, a spiritual manifestation of himself a braver big brother version of himself and that is what he did oh jadi hok ni ginilah habis jambu lebak adik nak minta tolong sangat lah habis boleh ke habis penai in a few moments his doppelganger who went by the name abis jambu lebat which kind of translates to brother with the big fro appeared with a mighty poof 
poof as in the sound effect, not the hair. Dewa Muda told him what he needed and to raise the kite. Abiz Jambulabad called to the power of the winds and the forces of the elements of nature and lo and behold, the golden kite began to magically float into the air. It rose and rose high up into the sky. It shot so high up that suddenly, with a glint and a glimmer, it disappeared from view. Down on earth, they pulled at the kite string to bring it back down, but it was stuck. Dewamuda was livid. Bring it back, he yelled. Bring it back, he besieged his brother. But his brother said, No, it is stuck, no longer of the earthly realm, but in the realm of the jinns and setans, the realm of evil. There is one way to bring it back, Abiz Jambulabad says. I will give you the power to climb up the string, but you will be tested. The jinns and setans and evil beings will try to stop you and topple you. But if you promise not to back down, not to abandon your journey till you reach the kite, you will be granted the power to climb up the string. The Dewa Muda agreed and began his climb. But halfway through, he heard a most horrible sound. <laughs> the sound of a jinn's booming laughter. The Dewamuda closed his eyes and began to imagine what the jinn looked like. Big and dark with luminous green eyes, fangs and a blood-red tongue, which he wagged close to the Dewamuda's face. He screamed like a girl and scrambled down the kite string. As soon as his foot touched the earth, Abe Sejambulabat hit him square in the face. A scuffle ensued. How could you abandon the code of mankind? You promised to do something, you must fulfill it. That is the mark of a man. What are you? What will you do now? You will forever be known as the king who backed down the kite string, chosen to receive this opportunity, yet too afraid to attain greatness. How can your subjects respect you then? A king who abandons his promise, a king with no principles. What would you rather be, a hero or a mouse? Dewa Muda screamed for help and cried and yelled. He then quieted down and meditated on his problem. Finally, he shook his head and came to his senses. He dredged up every ounce of bravado in his blood and told Abes Jambulabad that he would begin his ascent again. Abes Jambulabad was pleased with his decision and decided to go with him. And he said, Brother, to ease our journey, we shall take the form of small animals. And poof! They turned into a couple of chipmunks, or hamsters, or mice. You choose. And then they set up the kite string again. Meanwhile, the kite had risen up into the realm of the heavens and had gotten lodged onto the roof of the princess's palace. Take it down gently and put it in a safe place, she ordered her minions. At that very moment, the two chipmunks, or hamsters, or since we're speaking Klantanese, perhaps they should be a pair of civet cats or musangs. 
our two heroic Musangs had arrived at the princess's garden at the foothills, the base of the princess's palace. Being hungry rodents, they stripped the garden, tore up the flower bushes looking for the kite, and plundered the fruit trees, taking their fill of the heavenly garden. The princess, who inspected her prized flower bushes each day, walked into the garden and was faced with a nasty shock. What in heaven had done this to her garden? She summoned her magic, and in a flash of twinkly light, the two rodents were revealed. Who are you and why have you done this to my garden? She waved her hand again, and they were revealed to be two beings from the human earth. The moment she set eyes on Dewa Muda, the princess exclaimed, and a confession followed. Oh, jadi hot ni gini lah habe. Bunga habe pegi dale katunya habe. The princess confessed that in her travels to the realm of the human earth, she had once set eyes on Dewa Muda and had fallen in love with him. She had then orchestrated the dream and the flower in order to bring him to her. And of course, I don't have to tell you, they fall in love and live happily ever after. Now, according to Zamzuria, this is hardly the end of the story. Mak Yong performances are known to go for four or five days at a time, so you can be sure that there are more twists and turns ahead for Dewa Muda and his mystical princess. But for now, some poetry from writer and performer William Beale. That's up next on A Sunday Kind of Love, BFM 89.9. You're listening to A Sunday Kind of Love. I'm Tasha Fussell. We're back with our story sharing episode. You may know him from various poetry slams and readings around KL. Here's talented writer and performer William Beale with a poem. This poem is called Breathe Breath. It's about one man's journey through life, told through the story of his breath. It's all about, well, to be honest, it kind of has parts of my life into it as well, um, connected to my ancestors. Um, has different parts of uh, of stories and sort of sections of lives, all into just one man's life. And it's really just telling the story of one man's journey, I guess. I want you to take a deep breath, pull in, blow out, breathe in, breathe out, take it in and just, just let it out. Inhale the madness, exhale serenity, every breath you breathe is another step in the stairwell of sanity and you are so close. You can feel the edges of your mind dissipate and circulate as you translate the definition of calm into a sentence you can understand. So just breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in and breathe out. It's a sticky summer's day by the pool and you're this many years old. 
It's your first time touching the water and your tiny feet wiggle in delight of the cold, but a slip of the wrist and you're free of the vines that hold you above the icy water below. And as you begin to sink, the water envelopes you and you realize there's no breath anymore. It's your first time thinking in terms of stillness and breath and you begin to understand the difference between life and death. But you feel the embrace of your father's hands and you're back again in the arms of those that love you. So breathe in and breathe out. It's your seventh birthday and you can't seem to get all the candles that line your cake. They glow with wicked indignation and they light your family's elation. You see how proud they are of you, but inside you worry what will happen if the lights stay on, if the candles can't be asked to let bygones become bygone. So you silently ask the candles for their cooperation and one final breath is blown and the last candle flutters its bright wings and turns to smoke in the air. There are sounds of clapping and smiles before you breathe a breath and forget the nightmare. Breathe in. Breathe out. The field is hot and your coach is shouting and even though you're 14 this year, the awkward transition of boy to man is growing and growling. But as you run across the grass, you thirst for water to quench the pit in your stomach to stop the sun from coming in because you're too afraid of asking the coach for a timeout because real men don't need timeouts so you keep on running. And the world is spinning like a spinning top and God is above you watching his globe dance in the darkness. Spots begin to form inside your eyes and turn off the feeling in your limbs. And just when it can't get any worse, the spinning top stops and the world is right again. And your breath comes back to you and writes the world from whence it came. Just breathe in and breathe out. Your best friend's eyes look into yours with mischief and a sick kind of knowledge, which is the knowledge that being 20 years old seems like the best age to be. He lights a stick of something awful and hands it to you, and even though you know better, you take it because nothing can touch you when you're this young and this free. You take a puff, and a cough erupts from your throat saying no in the form of the air that you smoked. No, your breath was made for better things, not for leading your life down a tunnel of trouble. You pass it back to him, and notice a chip in the glass statue that is the knowledge that you thought you knew. And the cough, it slowly recedes from you. Breathe in, and breathe out. The image before you is not something you thought you would ever see. 31 years old and the woman you marry lies in bed with a stranger. No words this time. Just a hot anger as you see them with the cookie jar as jarring thoughts bar your throats and you turn around and throw the wedding ring on the floor. Your breath is as rough as you hear her call your name but you keep on walking your lungs a rich red flame. Breathe in and breathe out. 53 years old and you're starting to feel it as the coffin and the body of your mother lies in front of the pulpit tears line your face and the air is sick with the stench of incense your father's mask cracks behind you and veins of tears run down yours you move to kiss her cold forehead her breath is no longer at home in this household it has moved on 
And you know you should too, but you can't. Your breath is slow, not like it used to be. It has seen too many things for it to be free. Now it is patient, like a setting sun, like the people that surround you as your world becomes undone. Breathe in and breathe out. You're 62 years old. And as you're coming back from a long day at work, the world begins to blur. Your heart, it hurts like the first time you lost your first love, except time cannot heal this wound. You're on your last breaths now, and even if it's getting harder to reach the air, it's the last of many. And you, you are almost there. It's the last step that connects the breath of life and death, so breathe away. Inhale and exhale, because wasted air is a terrible thing, and the world is made of people wasting their breath. So go right ahead, and let the wind suffocate the suffering until there's nothing left. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe... Out of this world out of this place and into another but just pray that your last breath is the first of another and with that we've come to the end of our story sharing episode on a sunday kind of love with me tasha fusil along with maya tan and our special guests zamzuria zahari and william beale Till next time, you've been listening to A Sunday Kind of Love on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.